Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, my name's Brad, and I have the unenviable task of following cuteness overload. Hey, as they're leaving, let's just give God thanks for children, a church full of children. Isn't it just wonderful? Praise God. Yeah. Man, praise the Lord. And as Tyler prayed for the Copleys, I just want to piggyback on that and say how wonderful it is to have Logan and Molly here. Um, Man, I remember meeting Logan right there in that section the first time he came, a couple weeks after we moved into this building in September of 2010. And what the Lord has done through him is wonderful. He is going to be preaching here, Lord willing, before they go back to uh, Amsterdam or to the Netherlands, the second Sunday of January, and I assure you that he will be preaching in English. (laughs) So don't miss that. Well, let's open our Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, we're going to consider just a few verses in the opening of Galatians. Before, after after Logan preaches, the, the middle of January, we're going to begin a series through the New Testament letter of Hebrews, which I am very excited about. These next, somebody's clapping already for Hebrews. All right, okay, the crowd is restless. But for the next few weeks, we're going to do some standalone messages. This morning, I want us to consider Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And as you're finding it, let me, let me remind you that, that there are some things in this world that we do not fully understand, and we just sort of live in that tension But we accept and we trust that even though these things aren't things that we fully understand, they're true. Did you know that a former member of Crosspoint is currently an astronaut in space on the International Space Station? His name is Frank Rubio. He and his wife, Deb, and their beautiful children were members here at Crosspoint years ago when he was stationed at Fort Benning. He graduated from West Point in the late 90s. I think he might have been an infantryman for a while, and then he was an aviator. He flew several combat missions as a helicopter pilot in Afghanistan. Then he transitioned to become an Army doctor, which brought him here to do his residency at Martin Army Hospital, and they were stationed here while he was doing that. Then he became a Special Forces doctor, and he was with the Green Berets as a doctor in the Army. And then, as if he hadn't accomplished enough already in his young life, He decided to go into the Army space program where he became an astronaut, and about a month ago, he was launched into space and is now currently working. He is hovering in the heavens, living on the International Space Station for six months. Now, I believe, just as much as I am standing here, that Frank Rubio is in space. I have the faintest idea how he actually got there. He was shot up in a metal tube through the Earth's atmosphere, somehow grabbed by whatever forces are up there, it stopped, and he somehow, along with a few other American astronauts and several others from around the world, is currently living in space on the International Space Station. I believe that's true. I don't understand it. I want us to consider two things that are very, very true today that we do not fully understand. In fact, 
on this last Sunday before Christmas morning, I thought we'd go all in and that we would consider maybe the true, the two most difficult truths in the whole Bible to understand. The mystery of the incarnation and the problem, as some people put it, of evil. So I want to pose our outline in two questions. First, what is the purpose of the incarnation? And secondly, what is the purpose of evil? I want to think about those two questions, and we're going to look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, to help us orient ourselves to that question, because I think this question comes up again and again in the Scriptures. Let me pray, and then let me read verses 3 through 5, and then we're going to launch through and read, Lord willing, a bunch of Scripture to help us understand and orient and believe the truths of Scripture about these all-important questions, even if we don't fully understand these things, we can accept and trust God's wise ways. So let me pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for waking us up. Thank you for December 18th, 2022. Thank you that you've ordained this day. Thank you for these beautiful children. Thank you for Logan and Molly. Thank you for their salvation that they met and married and fell in love and moved across the world. Thank you for the ways that you're using them. Thank you, thank you for the generosity of these saints in this church that send them. Lord, thank you for every live that's here today. For those that know you and are trusting in you and walking through various circumstances, both good and bad in their lives, thank you for those that are in this room that do not know you, that you and your kind providence have caused them to come into this room to hear these truths today. Lord, today is not an accident. Nothing happens by chance. We are all here under your divine good providence. So, Lord, we don't want to waste this morning. Help us to lean in to your word, help us to trust it, help us to see it, and help us to wonder at it and be amazed. Lord, your word is not a math equation. It's not something ultimately that we can solve and put on a blackboard. It is a grand, glorious mystery that is sufficient for us to know and to revel at and wonder at the God of our salvation. May we worship you this morning as we look at your word and as we consider these questions. And I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul opens his letter to Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Uh, by the way, uh, years ago when we first started Crosspoint, I preached through Galatians. And um, since that time, I think I've developed a little bit as a preacher and just theologically. And so Galatians is a really important book, a letter in the New Testament. So Galatians is kind of high on my list to preach again to correct all of the things I said the first time I preached through Galatians. So um, just this might be in the hopper soon, and we'll call it Galatians, parentheses, retractions. Okay, verse 3, Galatians chapter 1. Grace to you, Paul says to the church at Galatia, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4 who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God, of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, I want you to see just in these first three verses, these only three verses that we'll read from this text, and then we'll be all over the rest of the Bible in a moment. But I want you to see embedded in this opening to Galatians inherent in Paul's greeting here is this tension of these two truths that we are going to look at this morning. It speaks about this need for deliverance from sins and 
Who and how will we be delivered from these sins? It will be through the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself. God became man and gave himself on the cross to bear the wrath of God, to deliver God's people from the evil of this present age, and even more primarily from his wrath to reconcile us to himself and to make us holy. And he has done all of this, delivering us from sin, his wrath, and this present evil age according to his own will, to whom be the glory forever and ever Amen. So in a way, these three verses where Paul is just opening up and saying hello to the Galatians are embedded really the purpose of all creation, that God has created a world that he has allowed to fall. There's the problem of evil. What's the purpose of evil? And how is he going to reconcile a people from this evil, from this fall? He's going to do it through the giving of Christ himself, the Son of God. And how does he actually give Christ? He gives Christ in the flesh. And so there's our two questions that I want us to consider on this December 18th. What is the purpose of the incarnation? And what is the purpose of evil? I've got about 30 minutes to consider the two greatest questions in the history of the universe. Let's get to it. What's the purpose of the incarnation that Jesus would give himself for our sins? Well, the first thing we need to remember and understand when we talk about the incarnation is that it is a word that means the enfleshment, that God became flesh. And how did this come about? How did God, the Son, become a man through, as we know, During this Christmas season, we think about these truths in these scriptures a lot. We think about the virgin birth, and this is something that is essential for the story of the gospel, for redemption. We read about this in Luke chapter 1. Let me read to you. This is good for us to read. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26, we see Luke's account of the virgin birth explained to Mary. He says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, who was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So just in one verse there, notice that Luke uses the word virgin twice to describe Mary. Anytime that something like that, a word is repeated so closely together, it's intentional by the Holy Spirit. He's wanting to accent the status of Mary to draw out our attention to the miraculous nature of the virgin birth of Christ. Verse 28, and he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. I mean, just put yourself in Mary's shoes. That doesn't happen every day that an angel comes to you. And the angel said to her, verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, verse 31 You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And if you link What Gabriel said and how he described this child that would be consumed in her womb, it's clear that it's just no ordinary human. There's something divine happening here in this child that that will be conceived in her womb. Verse 34, 
I think this is a legitimate question that Mary has here. It's really the, the most e- economically stated question, really, I think, in all of the scriptures. And we can sympathize with Mary. And Mary said to the angel, uh, how will this be since I am a virgin? And here's the miracle. Here's all we get in verse 35. And the, answer, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So it doesn't give us any detail, but Mary herself was a sinner, just like every other human being up to that point. And the angel Gabriel tells Mary that a miracle is going to happen, that this child is not going to come through natural means of conception, but the angel, the God is going to do something in her. There's going to be conception in her womb. And because it is done through the agency of God, somehow what is conceived in her, the sin that she has by her nature is blocked and is not transmitted to the real human that is forming in her womb. And he has no inherited sin from his father Joseph because he wasn't involved in the process. And this miracle of miracles happens in the womb of this teenage girl and the virgin birth happens and God becomes man. And that is the miracle of miracles. C.S. Lewis, the great English author and philosopher, said that it's the grandest of miracles. He said the whole, every other miracle is either preparing us for this or explaining it or pointing back to it. The great miracle of the incarnation that God would take on flesh. Now, I want to give you a kind of radar for how important this is all throughout the New Testament. Let me read to you just in quick fashion several verses in the New Testament to show you how concerned and what a priority it was in the minds of the New Testament apostles when they were speaking about the work of Jesus to remind us that Jesus is in the flesh, that he's a real human, that he's God become man. Listen to Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, speaking of Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. You know, Paul could have just said he's reconciled you and not given that descriptor, but he wants to accentuate the truth of the incarnation in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, he says, For he, meaning Jesus, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Again, he could have just said he's broken down this dividing wall of hostility between us and God, which then I think the the point that Paul is making, if the wall between us and God is broken down and we're in Christ, then the wall between Jew and Gentile is broken down. But again, he accentuates this qualifier in his flesh. Romans chapter 8, verse 3, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So Paul, in this great mountain peak of scripture, is wanting to draw our attention to the necessity and the centrality of the enfleshment or the incarnation 
of God the Son in the flesh. Peter says this too, 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, or in the Spirit. A few verses later, 1 Peter 4, verse 1. Since, there Christ, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, again, he could have just said suffered, but he says in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And it's so important, this idea of God becoming flesh, of Jesus becoming a man, is so important that at the end of the New Testament age, the gospel writer John, who we just worked through John's gospel here over the last year, he writes three short letters right before the end of what we know of the New Testament Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And this is what John says. John is going to make the point here, and I think he's the last apostle that was with Jesus, that, that, that he lives the longest. And one of the last things that he wants to warn the church about is this early heresy, this early destructive doctrine that was circling around in the early church. It was called docetism. Dose, this word that means it seems like, and it was this false teaching that people were saying that Jesus only seemed like a human, but he wasn't truly human. And John is so concerned about this, in his last few letters before he passes away, he goes so far as to say that if a person is saying that God didn't actually become a real man, then what they're speaking is the spirit of the Antichrist. Listen to what Paul, uh, John says, 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, by this you know that the spirit the, know the spirit of god every spirit that confesses that jesus christ has come in the flesh is from god the second john his next letter chapter 1 verse 7 for many deceivers have gone out into the world those who do not confess the coming of jesus christ in the flesh such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist okay so i hope you're like maybe some of you're like brad we got it I just want you to see this point of how important the incarnation is in the mind of the New Testament writers and therefore in the mind of the Holy Spirit. It is important. Jesus came in the flesh. Now, here's the question. Why was his humanity necessary? Why couldn't God just have waved his magic divine wand and made redemption possible from on high without going through the humility and the descent of Jesus into real flesh to live a real life, to lay down that perfect life on the cross to bear the sins, the wrath of God for his people? Well, we get an answer, I think, in the New Testament epistles. Why was his humanity, why was his incarnation necessary? Well, a few reasons. We could spend a lot of time on this, but let me just give you a few. I think to represent his people. Now, God always deals with people through a head. I think if you understand this, you will kind of understand humanity. There are two heads, two, two heads of humanity, Adam who is the first fountain of humanity, and we are all, all of us are descended from Adam. And the second head is the new Adam, which is Christ. And every human being, every person, is either in Adam, represented by him, still in their sin, dead in their sin, or is in Christ, represented by their trust in him and made alive, have been made like Christ, everybody. 
And this is Paul's point in Romans chapter 5. God deals with us through two heads, either Adam or Christ. And Romans 5 verse 17 says, For if because of one man's trespass, meaning Adam's sin, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of the grace and free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And so Paul is telling us is this is how God works. He reigns through human, humanity. He reigns through the one man, Adam, and he reigns through the one man, Christ. And you are either in Adam or in Christ. Another reason Jesus' humanity was fully necessary was to satisfy. I think this may be at the very foundation, at the very ground zero of the gospel, to satisfy the holiness and justice of God. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says this, Therefore he, meaning Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In other words, Jesus had to become like us. He had to become a human. He had to become a real man so that, so that, there it is, there it is, schoolhouse rock, kids that grew up in the 70s, conjunction, junction, what's your function? Why did Jesus have to become like us? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So what is propitiation? You know this if you've been around Crosspoint, but you can't be reminded of this word too much. This is at the very center of the message of the Bible, this word propitiation. It means that Jesus became the wrath-absorbing, condemnation-extinguishing sacrifice on the cross to bear the weight of all of God's wrath for all of the sins of all of the people that would ever trust in him. In fact, his work, his life, his death, his substitute, his sacrifice on the cross was enough to satisfy the wrath of all of the people that have ever been created in all of their sins, but it is effective or efficient or applies only to those who trust in him. And that's what Jesus has done. And in order, and this is how God has designed the universe, in order for that to happen, Jesus had to be made like us so that he could represent fallen man on the cross, stand in our place, bear the wrath of God, extinguish it, remove it, and rise again in victory over sin, death, and the grave. And in this, the love of God... And the justice of God meet on the cross. The love of God is displayed because Jesus gives himself. He humbles himself. And the justice of God is satisfied because God doesn't just pass over. He doesn't say, ah, well, you know, you messed up. He doesn't just withhold it. His wrath is actually satisfied by a real man who stands in our place. And think about this. This is what... Timothy says, or Paul says to Timothy, he says, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So there's Jesus who represents God to us because he's fully God, but yet he also represents us to God because he's fully man. And he stands in our place on the cross, fully man, like we are, taking our place, 
recapturing God's design for humanity, where we have all rebelled, where we have all disobeyed, where we all are in Adam, who lost everything in the garden, as Robert so clearly preached last week, lost, gone, all of the righteousness, all of the stewardship, all of the image of God that we should have been bearing all of these years, lost in the garden. Jesus as a real man, recaptures all of that in his real life. And then he lays down that righteousness on the cross, and he absorbs God's wrath, but he's not just a man who will die. He's God. He's a holy God who will rise again in triumph over sin, death, and the grave. Now, how do you put these two things together? Friends, I want you to not see this ultimately as a science experiment or an equation where we can solve it. But I want you to see some glorious inscrutability in the incarnation that God, very God, would become truly man and that the Father would pour out the wrath on the Son and then it would be absorbed and that he would rise again in victory over it. How can this be? Why would this be? We don't look at that and say, oh yeah, I got that. This is a nice little doctrine to check off. I got my little sticker from Sunday school. No, we look at that and we wonder at the glory and majesty and plan of God. We don't know all that there is to know, but we know enough of what we need to know to see it and trust in it. And that's the heart of the Christian faith. I know that Frank's in space. I don't know how, but I know enough to know that that is true. And I look at the glory of the incarnation, and I don't know all of the mysteries of that deep, deep well that has no bottom, I, but I do know enough of it to say, ah, that's where my hope lies. And that's the purpose of the incarnation. We could say much more, but let's move on. But before we do that, let's just apply this. Okay, there's two ways we can handle truths and doctrine and scriptures. One is objectively. Like objectively, how does the truth of the incarnation help us? Well, it's at the very core of our salvation. I mean, how can sinful man, how can us, even the best of us, how can we really make ourselves right with God? Regardless of what you believe about theology or the Bible or whatever, I mean, I just want to meet the guy that says, yeah, you know, I'm going to meet some God someday. I got this on my own. No, you, everybody else get out of my way. I'll, I'll stand behind. I, I, you know what, man? You should have seen me back in the day. I was a pretty good guy. Get out of my way. I'll be first in line to meet God with my own righteousness. I haven't met that guy. And if I do meet that guy, he needs to be put in an insane asylum. Nobody wants to do that. And so how does this, how does this truth help us? I just want you to see this objectively. Well, objectively... This truth helps us because, friends, come on, we all understand. We all just sort of innately, regardless of whether you're a believer or not, you know you have a sense that you were created and that there is this eternity. You will stand before your maker someday. What will be your plea? Will it be yourself? Will it be that you were basically better than other people? By the way, if that's the system that you're going with, your own righteousness, that you were pretty, pretty decent of a human being, you were better than the poor schmuck down the road, if that's the system that you're banking on before you stand before God someday, let me ask you a question. Where's the line? What makes your righteousness just enough for God to accept your life based on somebody else's? 
And don't we all draw that line just, you know, we don't, we're not so arrogant that we think we're the best, but we all draw that line right behind us. We think, well, you know, I'm a pretty good guy, so God should accept me. Friends, that's the false religion of this world, that we think that God will understand our intentions, that we've been pretty good people, and so therefore people like us that grow up in America, God will be happy to have someday in his presence for eternity. Friends, that is a false gospel. But the truth is, this is how the incarnation helps you, is you see the good news is not that God reconciles you to himself because of your fleshly righteousness or your life, but because of his sons who lived it in your place, and if you will trust in him, you are saved by not your works, but Christ's and his works, his righteousness is more than enough. So objectively, objectively, the incarnation is at the very core of the message of the gospel, which is the only message that can save sinners like us. But subjectively, subjectively, how does this help us? Like, what is that? Okay, I know that to be true, but I don't necessarily feel like that every day. I don't know if I'm the only weak Christian in the room, but sometimes is there a gap between what you know and how you actually feel? Anybody else? Okay, two or three others. Okay, okay. This is the question that I think I have dealt with pastorally more than any other. Not whether or not people believe that Jesus actually is who he says he is in the scriptures, or that God did this, or that the incarnation is true, or that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God, and then he rose again from the grave. I, I think the vast majority of people that I deal with pastorally actually believe that objectively. But do you believe it for you? For you, is that true for you? Can Jesus, yeah, Jesus can do it for, for he, can do, he can do it for Alex and Cindy and Reuben. He can do it for Scotty. He can do it for Matt, even though Matt's a Navy guy. He can do it for Matt. Yeah, but can he do it for me? Because I know, I know myself better than I know him and her. And I know how weak I am. Friends, the incarnation answers our subjective doubts. Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. He is, this is how the Bible describes the creator of the universe. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He's gentle and lowly. He came for sinners, not the righteous. He came in the flesh for people who were trapped by the flesh to rescue them from their own flesh. Friends, you need, some, some of us need to dwell on that, the subjective reality. And you may say, I don't, I don't feel that. Friends, that's why we need each other. That's why we need to gather. That's why we need the church. We need a choir. We need, we need a, an ensemble of friends together in the local church to remind us of the objective truth so that we will actually believe it subjectively through the week. Because even though we are Christians, and even though we may be born again, most of us, we all still deal with this dreaded disease. You know what it is. It's gospel amnesia. I can believe glorious things on Sunday morning when I'm in front of hundreds, hundreds of people, but I can forget them on Tuesday morning. That's why I need you. 
And that's why I need to come back in here every Sunday and take my anti-amnesia pill, which is the gospel sung and preached and prayed and seen with the saints of God. So that what I believe objectively actually works itself down into my subjective heart. Question number one, now to the most difficult question of all in five minutes. What is, that's, that's the purpose of the incarnation, our salvation. What is the purpose of evil? This is the most nagging question of all. Our text, back to our text, Galatians chapter 1. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us. And ultimately he came to deliver us from his wrath, which Jesus satisfies. That's that word propitiation. But also from the present evil age. Because of sin, the world has been plunged into fallenness. And so not only do we have our individual flesh that we need to be rescued from, but we have our enemy, the devil, and we have the world, the, the unholy trinity as it's often referred to, the world, the flesh, and the devil, this present evil age. And he came to deliver us from this, but all of this is happening according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So if we read this with, 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 in, with, with, with biblical theology glasses on, we see, aha, there's something more going on here. In verses 4 and 5, the gospel has come. Jesus has become man and died for our sins to deliver us from something, from this evil that is happening according to the will of God, ultimately for his glory. And so even embedded in this greeting to Galatians are these these echoes, these glimmers of purposes for all things, even evil. But before we try and attempt to answer this question very humbly, let's just establish some important truths about God and his relationship with the fall, with evil. And let's, let's confess through these scriptures that he is sovereign over all of it, and he's in complete control. Let me read you a few scriptures very quickly. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Romans chapter 9, verse 17, this is Paul reflecting back on God's dealing with Pharaoh in Exodus in the, the, the freeing of the people of Israel from Egyptian captivity and how God dealt with Moses, or I'm sorry, with Pharaoh, and how God told Pharaoh through Moses that I'm going to raise Pharaoh up Listen to this, and I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart for the purposes of actually showing my glory and redeeming and rescuing my people from Pharaoh despite his hardened heart. And this is Paul's reflection on that, Romans 9 verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, so this is God speaking to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's, that's a God-exalting verse. God is saying that to Pharaoh, a real man. Amos chapter 3, verse 6, this rhetorical question God asks through the prophet, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? The rhetorical answer to the prophet Amos's question is no. In other words, God is in charge of it all. 
Isaiah 45, verse 7, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah to a rebellious Israel. I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So, so God is just reminding rebellious Israel, look, nothing that you're doing is sneaking up on me. I'm in charge of it all. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, one of the most glorious passages in all the Bible. This is Joseph speaking to his brothers at the end of Genesis who have sold him into slavery, which has caused a, chain, a series of chain events where he then was sold into slavery. He eventually gets lied about on several occasions from the, 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 the Egyptian leader's wife and his prison mates, and all of that under God's sovereign providential hand brings Joseph to a place where he is the governor of Egypt and is in a position to rescue his brothers and his family from Israel as they flee to Egypt because of a famine in Israel. And so they need food, and Joseph, this one that they sinned against, is in a place to rescue his people. And notice the providence and sovereignty of God as expressed through Joseph in his confession to his brothers. And this is Joseph speaking. He says, as for you, to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So even through the evil and the sin of his brothers, Satan had one intention but God is ordaining it and working in control over it and has another intention. There are two intentions, Satan's and God's, and they're both working together. And God actually uses Satan's to bring about his great plan. I've told you this, this before, um, and you guys chuckle every time. It was a difficult childhood memory for me, but I think it illustrates the point. And by the way, my parents are here so they can... I don't know if they, they weren't around. I don't know where they were. I was left unattended a lot as a child. And my parents are here today, and maybe we can work that out. And I, had one, I have one older brother, and actually my older brother's oldest daughter has moved to Columbus with her husband, and now they're coming to church here. And so, like the, the California event, they're coming, they're coming to Georgia. So uh, this is true. So not only is my brother's daughter, but my brother's parents, who are also my parents, are here listening to this right now. When I was younger... My brother and I would play this game where we would, we would box, and I would hit him wherever I could. And when he had enough of me taking body blows to him, he would jump on top of me because he was much bigger and stronger than me. And he would throw me down, and he would grab my hands, which always had boxing gloves on them, and he would use my fists and start to, he would make me hit my own face with my fists. He would actually use my weapons of war against me. I still need therapy over that, by the way. Thanks, Mom and Dad. Where, where were you guys? That's, in just a kind of a cute little illustration way, that's, that's how God works with evil. He is over it in such a divine, sovereign way that he actually uses the intentions of Satan to be the tools by which he works his good in the lives of people, his people. It's not God saying, oh my gosh, Joseph's brothers have sold him into slavery. 
What are we going to do now, heavenly hosts? It's God bringing those things about over the course of human history for the display of his glory, for his good. And we see this, friends, as much as we see this in the life of Joseph, how much more do we see this in actually the greatest evil of all, which is the cross? This is what, this is what Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 23. He says, this Jesus, listen to this, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So notice what's happening here. Peter is saying that the greatest evil of all, the crucifixion of the Son of God on the cross, the greatest, if we can put it this way, the greatest weapon of the enemy, which is death, which, by the way, is a weapon that's handed to him by God as a result of man's disobedience. The greatest weapon that the enemy has to wield over God's creation is death. And the enemy wields that sword on the cross thinking it's triumphed. But actually, it's all according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God who is using Satan and evil and sin's weapons against itself to defeat itself on the cross. The famous Puritan John Owen wrote this great book. It's massive, it's big, and he has really long sentences, and he doesn't know anything about punctuation, so it's hard to read. But I love the title. And it's this, the death of death in the death of Christ. In other words, God kills death. God extinguishes, he, he vanquishes death through the death of Christ. In his time, God throws the devil down and he uses his fists against him on his own face to bring about his glory. That's how God, that's, the, that's how one of the ways God uses evil which calls Paul to conclude in Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth. How can we understand this? How, how can this be? Why would God do it this way? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. So why did God do it this way? Why did God do it this way? I'm going to end with, with a, a few passages of Scripture, and then we'll pray, and then the band, the worship team will lead us. And some songs of response, listen to this. Why would God deal, interact, allow, persevere, bear with? Why would God arrange, create a universe that functions this way? Now we've arrived at, I think, the hardest question and the most difficult answer. And I think the Bible points us in a direction. It isn't the full answer, but it's a satisfactory answer. And Paul, I think, answers it in Romans chapter 9. Why did God allow evil? Why does he allow it to persist? Why does he defeat death through the death of the incarnate son on the cross? Why does God do this? This is what Paul says in Romans 9, verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? If God is so sovereign, he's picking up this question about how can God be this sovereign. It just seems to not make sense to our finite minds. For who can resist his will? Verse 20, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay 
to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Listen to verse 22. We're at the very heart of the answer to this question of God's purposes and even allowing the fall and evil in our world. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Now, (laughs) we could spend a lot of time in Romans chapter 9, and we have. This is not the morning for that. But I want you to just, I want to point you to verse 22 and 23, where it says, what if God, desiring to show, so this purpose of evil, why has he allowed this? Why has he allowed the fall? That's, that's definitely what's going on here on some level in Romans 9. Why has he allowed sin? Why has salvation worked this way? Why, does some, why are some reconciled to God and others not? There's an intent of God to display his wrath and glory, to display back to our main verse, Galatians chapter 1. Why would God allow Jesus to come? And why would he need to rescue us from this present evil age? According to his will, to whom be the glory forever and ever. So friends, apparently the best way to read the Bible is through God-centered lens to know that the point of the Bible is the maximum display of the glory of God, not merely what we can get out of him in these 80 or 90 years that we live. And until you approach the Bible with that humility, it will never fully make sense. And that's where Paul is pointing us. So why did God do it this way? To display the inscrutable glory and beauty of God in the saving of many people out of the fall that he allowed. That's why Jesus came. That's why evil exists. For the display of God and the display of his glory. And when we see that, here's the connection, when we see that, it actually deepens our joy. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, this is where Paul points us. Robert read this last week. I end with this. Just to consider this, because if we're wondering, why would God, what's going on here? Paul wants to point us to something beyond our current circumstance. And he says, well, I consider that the sufferings of this present time the evil that we face, the evil that's still inside of us, the evil that we're dealing with, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, which is actually ours. What's Paul saying? Listen, God has an intention for our good and our joy and eternity forever and ever and is being put on display through our lives, rescued through the incarnation of Christ as we persevere and as we rest and trust in the goodness of God and his triumph over evil through the humble incarnation of his son. That's why we make such a big deal of the incarnation. That's why Christmas morning 
is a celebration not merely of sweet infant Jesus, but victorious, glorifying Son of God come in the flesh for us. Let's pray. Lord, these are weighty truths. If there's anything that I've said that was wrong or not on the mark, let it fall to the ground. If there's anything that was true, may it stick fast to our hearts. We want to behold these glorious truths, not so we we can put them in a, a doctrinal category, not so that we can stand over them as something that we can we can organize but it's something that we stand under and worship because it leads us to a right understanding of who you are Father for the saint in this room that is vexed by remaining sin by evil around them by frustrating circumstances in their life may the incarnation the beauty of it help answer the evil and the suffering that they're presently enduring and your purpose is in it. And for the friend that has come today that maybe has relied on their own righteousness or maybe they've looked at you as a means to an end towards a better or more successful life, may you destroy their faulty notions and may you cause them to look up and see the God who's in the heavens who does all that he pleases that they will stand before someday and their only hope will be Christ. May you cause them to turn and trust not in themselves but in Jesus, the incarnate God in the flesh. And may we all leave this room worshiping you truly and rightly. In Jesus' name, amen.